Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Cocktails and Cold Cases. I'm Caitlin. And I'm Hannah. And we are so excited to be back and recording again after an insane year. So Hannah, last time we did a podcast, you were in nursing school. And tell us about what's been going on since then. So since then, I dropped out of nursing school. Um, I realized that it was not the path that I want to take, and I'm actually going down a whole different path, but that's all I'm going to say for now, so I don't jinx anything. I'm so proud of you. (laughs) Don't be yet. (laughs) Um, And then after that, it was just a really rough beginning to the year for me with my grandpa passing away. It was really hard on our family. So I took a lot of time to try to at least start healing from that. And I still have a really hard time with it sometimes, but I'm taking it day by day. It's all you can do. Um, I quit my job, got myself out of direct health care. Now I am working an office job Monday through Friday glorious I'm so happy for you (laughs) I know no one else knows this none of our listeners know this but a lot of these changes the good changes that uh have been coming a long time for Hannah so I have been dying to work normal hours and not have to work weekends and holidays for so long. So it feels really good to finally be getting myself into that kind of position. I'm sure. I'm really excited to have you back on weekends too, selfishly. <laughs> <laughs> you got to share. <laughs> and then I guess other than that, I've just been spending a lot of time with like my sister, my brother-in-law, and of course my favorite, my nephew, been watching a lot of him playing baseball and whatever other sports he decides he wants to play it's really cool because now I can actually make it to his games so I just went to one tonight they didn't win but he's doing really good he got some good hits in it was cool to see good he's having fun with baseball oh he loves it that makes me so happy awesome I can see him like sticking with it straight through into high school and everything. That's how much he loves it. Oh, that's incredible. So cute. He looks like a little teenager. (laughs) (laughs) He does. I love him. (laughs) (laughs) He was mad at me because I wouldn't go home with them after the game. (laughs) Like, buddy, you have school tomorrow and I have work. I will see you this weekend. (laughs) (laughs) Aunt Hannah's just clearly his fave. Obviously. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, that's pretty much all that's new with me that I can think of. So what's new with you? Oh, gosh. So since last September, um, let's see. I was engaged and living with my fiance then uh, last year. So back in June, I just realized it was not in the cards for us and that's fine and dandy but just wasn't where I needed to be so I packed up my things I moved into my new apartment and I now no longer have a fiance 
Um, so there was like a two month period where I was waiting to get in my current apartment that I just moved into about a month ago. And for the two months between, um, moving out of my old place and moving in my new place, I spent my time living with Hannah out of town. Um, I've been working remotely with pandemic, so I was fortunate enough to go have that time with you. <laughs> I'm still so sad that you're not here anymore. Like I come home and the house is so quiet. I'm like, no, you need to come back like now. I brought a lot of chaos and a uh, chaotic energy to Hannah. So <laughs> I'm surprised you miss me. It's because you're not here. <laughs> I'll come down this week and then you'll be like, wow, can you go home again? <laughs> <laughs> I say it out of love. I don't really mean it. <laughs> but yeah um also since last year I've started working on my master's degree so that has been crazy um it's been super busy but a super good time lately uh yeah but that's about it with me look at you out here doing the dang thing I love you so much thank you <laughs> <laughs> so proud thank you I love you <laughs> <laughs> I love you too, I guess. That's about on par. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, if I'm like being all sappy, you know something's wrong. So be happy with what you got. All right. So before we get started with our episode, we have some shout outs. Um, (laughs) Hannah, you can go first. So by the time you guys are hearing this podcast, it will be my mom's birthday. So happy birthday, Mama Peg. Happy birthday, Mama Peg. (laughs) (laughs) And let's see. The day after this podcast gets released will be my parents' anniversary. And I believe they've been married for 32 years, it'll be. A happy anniversary. Happy anniversary, Mom and Dad. Love you guys. Love you. (laughs) (laughs) all right so the episode today will be around the solder children which is a very interesting case for both Hannah and I um so Hannah's the one who found out about this case and it's technically closed but once we get into all the nitty-gritty of it and the details you'll understand why Hannah and I think of this more as a cold case it feels like it was more um solved so to speak just to say hey we have a resolution to this not because they wanted to get it done right or get the facts really just open and close case so when I was researching this case I freaking spiraled I kept finding new information I was like oh my god this is insane and then I would scroll through more and I'm like oh my god (laughs) yeah I got a couple texts from Hannah saying hey I hope this isn't too long I'm sorry (laughs) down the rabbit hole we went (laughs) which actually like reading it for the podcast and like sharing the information I don't think it takes as long but looking at it all written out it looks so long yeah it does it's like I think eight pages worth of information almost so it's a good amount of information so without further ado we'll get into it we hope you guys enjoy for our drink of choice today 
we are just doing whatever we have around since we are currently apart. I am currently drinking for my cocktail some tequila and some LaCroix because I have nothing else, but I wanted to make it work. (laughs) Hannah, what are you drinking? I am just drinking some good old wine. One of my friends got me some rosé for my birthday, so I'm giving that a whirl. Ooh, nice. Okay, so moving on to the case of the Sauter children. Um, so just some background. George Sauter was born in Tula, Sardinia in 1895. He immigrated to the U.S. and Ellis Island in 1908 at 13 years old and was accompanied by one of his older brothers. After arriving to Ellis Island, his older brother immediately returned to Italy, leaving George here alone. He worked on the Pennsylvania railroads, carrying water and supplies to the laborers. And a few years later, he moved to Smithers, West Virginia. So a little close to home for us since we're in Pennsylvania. He worked as a driver and then eventually started his own trucking company, which hauled dirt for construction and then later freight and coal. One day he went to a store called The Music Box where he met the owner's daughter, Jenny Cipriani. Jenny had come to the States from Italy herself when she was just three years old. And eventually they both got married. And between 1923 and 1943, they had 10 children, which I cannot imagine. That is insane. I mean, times are much different, but that is not something I would ever want to do. I feel like having that many children was pretty common for the time, though. Like now the thought of 10 children is insane and I can't even comprehend that. Like the thought of more than three children is overwhelming. At the time, I think a lot of people did have a lot of kids. Oh yeah, absolutely, you're right. But they ended up settling in Fayetteville, West Virginia, which is a small town that had an active Italian immigrant community. And the Sauters were a respected family in the community. George was very outspoken about his political views. He had strong anti-fascist views about dictator Benito Mussolini, who had been killed eight months prior to the end of World War II, which on December 2nd, 1945. George's views caused a bitter distrust among fellow Italian immigrants who liked Mussolini. So that last fact about his political views, that's pretty important for this case, which we will find out more about towards the end just a lot of wild stuff happened. So on the night of Christmas Eve, George, Jenny, and nine of their 10 children went to bed when at about midnight, a phone call woke Jenny. When she answered, a woman asked for an unknown name. Jenny recalls the woman having a weird laugh and there were people in the background also laughing. She heard clinking glasses in the background as well. She told the woman she had the wrong number and then hung up and didn't really think anything of it. Before going back to bed, she noticed that the doors were unlocked and the curtains were still open. This was unusual because the kids would typically take care of securing the house before bed, um, like locking the doors, closing the curtains, all of that. One of the kids was asleep on the couch and Jenny assumed that the rest of the children were asleep up in the attic. So she made sure to lock up and then close the blinds and went back to bed. About half an hour passed when Jenny woke to what she described as something hit the roof, like a rubber ball. 
It rolled and hit the ground with a thump. Again, she didn't really think much of this and went back to sleep. So around 1 a.m., the family woke up to smoke and realized that their house was on fire. So George, Jenny, and four of the children made it out of the house. There was Sylvia, who was two, Marion, who was 17, John, who was 23, and George Jr., who were 16. Those are the kids that made it out. When John and George had fled from their upstairs bedroom, they actually ended up like singeing their hair in the flames on the way out. One of the boys was actually away in the military, so only nine kids were involved in the fire. The other five who did not make it out were Maurice, who was 14, Martha was 12, Lewis was nine, Jenny was eight, and Betty was five. George had made many attempts to try to save them. One way he tried to save them was by breaking a window to enter the house again, but the smoke from the fire was so thick that he couldn't see through it, and the smoke and fire had completely taken over the entire downstairs of their house. When he got to the staircase to try to get upstairs to the kids, he could not because the staircase was also engulfed in flames. Uh, the bedrooms that the kids were in were on opposite sides, so he there was no way he could get to either of those rooms. He then had rushed back outside in hopes to reach the upstairs bedrooms through the windows. However, the ladder that he usually kept propped against the house was missing, which is really sketchy if you ask me. He then came up with the idea to drive one of his coal trucks up to the house and climb on top of it to get to the windows. But both of his coal trucks, which the day before were functioning perfectly fine, would not start. Neither one. Yeah, so someone was there and they wanted to make sure that whoever got stuck in the house stayed stuck in the house this family they wanted them to suffer in some way absolutely george was seriously like completely desperate to find some sort of solution to get to his other children like i can't even imagine my house going up in flames and not being able to get to some of my kids i don't know what i would do either that's insane just the most unimaginable thing ever I know. I don't even have kids and it breaks my heart just thinking about it. Yeah, me too. So he then ran up to the rain barrel to try to get some water to like at least slow the fire down. Just like I said, he was desperate to do anything to try to get to his kids. But the water was completely frozen. Their one daughter, Marion, went to the neighbor's house to call the fire department, but when she tried to call, she could not get an operator response. And another neighbor who saw the blaze also tried to call from a nearby tavern, but they also got no response from any operators. This neighbor got so frustrated with the lack of response that they drove into town to find the fire chief. The fire chief then initiated the fire alarm system, which for them was where one firefighter would phone another 
who phoned another and so on and so forth. So basically like a big game of telephone. The fire department was only like two and a half miles away from the house and they didn't show up until eight o'clock in the morning. So by the time the fire department got there, the Sauter's home was just a basically a pile of ash. The Sauter's assumed that the five children that did not escape were dead. But after a brief search of the grounds, there was no trace of any remains or anything. Absolutely nothing that pointed to the children being in the house. So Chief Morris suggested that the fire had been hot enough to completely cremate the kids' bodies. So in the months leading up to the fire, an unknown man approached George at the Sauter home looking for work. George told him he wasn't in need of any workers. The man then looked up at the fuse box and said, this is going to cause a fire someday, which was very odd because the power supply company had recently checked electrical wires, which seemed to be fine, all checked out fine by their standards. Uh, Weeks before the fire, uh, salesmen came to the house trying to sell life insurance to them as well. After George declined, the salesman threatened him saying, your goddamn house is going up in flames and your children are going to be destroyed. You're going to be paid for the dirty remarks you have been making about Mussolini. And then the Sauter boys also noticed just before Christmas, there was a man parked along Highway 21 a few days in a row watching the Sauter children very closely as they went home from school. So a couple of very sketchy things and very odd and unsettling that a lot of people were talking about how their house is going to catch on fire and go up in flames. Yeah, not only that, but the one guy said that his children were going to be destroyed. Like, yep, that's very unsettling. But that part is where George's views about Mussolini and all of that come into play. Like I said, a lot of people in the town were very unhappy with George's views and, as you can see, were not accepting of them. Um, So after the fire, a jury was put together to determine the cause of death. One of the members of the jury was the man who told George his children would be destroyed and the house would burn down. To no one's surprise, the jury ruled that faulty wiring was the cause of the fire. The Sauters didn't agree, and I don't blame them. They recalled that the lights in the house remained on for a while as they watched their house burn down. George had also replaced the old wiring in order to install a new electric stove. So again, things seem to check out. Adding to the Sauters' doubt, a telephone repairman informed them that someone had cut the phone lines, which is a possible reason that Marion wasn't able to phone out. Neighbors had also seen a man stealing a block and tackle at the Sauter's house while fire was happening. He was later arrested and admitted to climbing up and cutting the phone wires. He said that he thought they were the electrical cables. We don't know what came out of that man being arrested. Another witness was a bus driver who worked a late shift. He said he saw balls of fire landing on the roof, which goes back to what Jenny had heard as far as what sounded like the rubber balls in the roof. So at this point, it's starting to look more like this was a case of arson rather than a faulty wiring. So even though 
this technically has an ending. This is why we have it as a cold case. Doesn't seem like it to us. Han and I both talked and we don't think that um, what the authorities determined was faulty wiring was the actual cause as I'm sure listeners can see, anyone else can see. Um, George covered the basement with several feet of dirt because he wanted to turn the site into a memorial for his children. How heartbreaking, Hannah. I know. I I can't even imagine how hard it would be to like go back and see that site and wonder like what happened to your kids. Especially with all these uncertainties about what actually happened. It would just be so so upsetting and heartbreaking yeah so after the fire there were a few reports of sightings of the five missing children Um, one girl claimed that she saw the children in a car driving away from the fire there was also a motel worker about 50 miles away from Fayetteville who claimed to have seen the kids the day after the fire And then again at another hotel in Charleston, a woman reported seeing the kids check in with two men and two women. She said the children were accompanied by two women and two men, all of Italian extraction. I tried to talk to the children in a friendly manner, but the men appeared hostile and refused to allow me to talk to these children. One of the men looked at me in a hostile manner. He turned around and began talking rapidly in Italian. A missionary also reported after seeing a picture of the kids in the paper that he had seen them in a house in Cortez, Florida. A private detective that the Sauters hired um, investigated this lead and said that the kids were definitely there, but they were sadly gone. There was actually five different people that claimed to have seen them in Cortez, Florida, which that's a lot of sightings, especially for a detective to say that they were like definitely there. Absolutely. Just kind of goes further to our theory of this wasn't just a closed case. So Jenny was unsatisfied with the conclusion of the investigation, so she started doing her own research to attempt to find some answers. On her wood stove, she experimented with animal bones, trying to get them to burn down, but she was unable to get them to burn down to ashes. She read about another house fire where seven people were killed. The investigation from that fire found remains of all seven of the bodies in the rubble, so Jenny knew she was onto something. She also reached out to a crematorium worker who told her that even bodies burned at 2000 degrees for two hours would leave some charred bones behind. So there'd be some sort of remains. They wouldn't all be reduced to nothing. Three months after the fire, the Sodders returned to visit their former home. Sylvia was playing on the rubble when she came across a hollow green object made of rubber. George ended up taking it to military officials who told him it was what's known as a napalm bomb. That's absolutely crazy. George and Jenny 
had made a vow to search for their five missing children until their deaths. And they absolutely kept this vow. They never stopped searching for their kids. Jenny even grew flowers at the site where the kids disappeared up until the day she passed away. And sadly, none of the family members remain alive today as the last living member, at least that we know of, um, Sylvia Sauter Praxton, passed away at 79 years old on April 21st of 2021. How tragic. That's an awful way to spend the rest of your life searching for your kids that you have no idea where they could possibly be if they're yeah. even still alive. Yeah, that's the thing. Cause I was thinking while I was reading all the information about this case, like what would be harder? Just thinking that all of your children passed away initially, not all, but you know what I mean? The five children passed away initially or knowing they were out there somewhere, you had no idea where. I just, I can't imagine either scenario, honestly. Me neither. Either way, it's just absolutely tragic. Yeah, it is. Hopefully someday somebody can find some sort of answer that is more than faulty wiring. Because after all of this information, I do not believe that it was faulty wiring. I don't either. Hopefully it lives on somewhere. Someone's still looking and trying to search for what really happened that night. I hope so. So as far as sources that Hannah and I use for this week's episode, uh, we consulted different websites such as the Smithsonian Magazine website, Historic Mysteries website, and Charleston Gazette Mail for Sylvia's obituary because there was some misinformation in there as well. Thank you guys for joining us for this week's episode of Cocktail and Cold Cases. Our next episode will be released at noon on Sunday, October 10th. So don't miss it. And we hope to see you guys then.